Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1391 to 1401, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1391, The Vexed Vampire, written by Semi-Loki. Vampire, werewolf, goblin, or ghoul, it didn't matter the breed. Soon enough, they all ended up at the same place, the White Castle. Stake out one of those long enough and all manner of weird creatures would drift inside. It makes sense, really. One of the side effects of the parasite is that it ramps up the metabolism to a ridiculous level. It's what allows them to heal in a matter of minutes and what would take days or weeks for a normal person. I've seen a vampire take two shotgun blasts to the chest and still not go down. The wounds were closing up faster than it took to reload. I aimed for his head on the third time. That stopped him. I felt sort of bad about that one, actually. Like a lot of afflicted, he was a former junkie. Unlike most, he didn't learn his lesson and didn't give up the life. Maybe it was all he knew how to do. He apparently kept quiet about his condition, and when a drug deal went south, some poor schmuck locked him up in a room for eight hours with no food. He was a vamp, and vamps have to eat every four hours, or the parasite starts cannibalizing the host. Unfortunately, as far as the parasite is concerned, that three and a half pounds of fat inside the skull is just as good a source of food as any. They call it the rage. As the parasite starts eating away the brain, the afflicted become very strong, very aggressive, and very, very angry. Extreme tolerance for pain and almost zero self-preservation instincts. By the time I arrived, we already had six dead dealers and a few thousand dollars worth of structural damage to the building. If it hadn't been daytime outside, the situation would have been a lot worse. My point is that the afflicted need a steady supply of protein 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, with no time off for good behavior. The smart ones keep a stash of beef jerky on them at all times. Yes, vampires eat beef jerky. Try keep up. Since the hunger pangs hit on a fairly regular schedule, most afflicted tended to develop predictable patterns. They didn't like to be too far away from fast food restaurant, and every 12 to 14 days, they wouldn't go out at all, as that was purging day. That was the other big downside of the parasite. The reproductive cycle. Once every two weeks, the afflicted vomited out a fresh batch of new slugs. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Anyways, most afflicted are like anyone else. After a while, they settle into routines. They stick to a certain territory and move in predictable ways. Patterns are bad. Predictability is worse which is why I was pretty certain if I hung out in this white castle just a few blocks away from where the blood runner had been killed, I'd see the perpetrator. Just after midnight hour passed, I was proven right. For some reason, I found that almost disappointing. I knew him almost from the moment he stepped through the door. He was skinny as a rail, but his movements were strangely quick. Almost like he dissolved Adderall into a double espresso. His eyes flicked from face to face scanning us, looking for a target. Bloody hell, he'd really had gone rogue. Still, there was a chance that he was just a tweaker feeling paranoid, and I decided to sit back and watch. After scanning the crowd, he marched towards the counter and, completely ignoring the queue, 
shoved himself ahead of a grandmotherly-looking woman and grinned at the woman behind the register. I'd like 30 cheeseburgers, six large fries, and a large coke, he announced. Yeah, definitely, my guy. Part of the appeal of Whitecastle is the staff were used to a certain degree of gluttony. The absurd portions that the afflicted needed didn't raise so many eyebrows, but it wasn't the order size that convinced me. It was his attitude. He acted like he owned the place. He threw off an apex predator vibe that caused a ripple of uneasiness to spread through the line behind him. This guy was going to be trouble, and I knew it. I waited for him to claim a seat, and then, casually, I stood up and walked over to his table and sat down across from him. He was on his third cheeseburger by then, and only looked up when he heard the seat move. His jaw froze mid-chew. A vamp I could sneak up on. What was the world coming up to? Hi, I said, as I favored him with a playful smile. You have exactly one hour to leave town. Have a nice day. He swallowed. Who the f- I held out my wrist and flashed my identity bracelet at him. To an unobservant, it looked like a standard medical bracelet. It even had some bogus text printed on the underside, alerting people to an unimportant allergy. However, if someone bothered to look closely, they'd notice that there was only one snake wrapped around the staff, and it was coiled the wrong way. Bambi here knew the emblem and rolled his eyes. Blood runner, he muttered with a sneer. He was half right, actually. I belonged to the Caduceus, and they were an organization who supplied blood to the vamp community. I even still had the occasional blood run when I wasn't too busy, or when they were short-handed. After all, that's where I started out in the organization. No, these days my title was actually Enforcer, and it was exactly as ominous as it sounds. I shook my head sadly. You've been sloppy, I told him. Too sloppy. You've been drawing attention to yourself and to the afflicted in general. So you're banished. Start over someplace with a new name and maybe we'll forget about Mikey. Who? He asked. The blood runner you drained two nights ago, I elaborated. The corner of his lips twitched in the most fleeting of smiles. Well, that was my final confirmation. I had the right guy, all right. He was a good kid, I said, as I lowered my voice to a whisper. He was really trying to turn his life around. You really shouldn't have done that. Look, he human, he spat the word out like it was a profanity. You little caduceus bastards think that you've got us by short and curties, don't you? It's extortion. That's what it is. You're exorbitant prices for blood, for blood. Like, I can't get it anywhere. I sighed. Sloppy and stupid. A lethal combination. We charge what we have to, I said. This isn't a charity, you know. We provide a service for the afflicted. All afflicted. Even worthless ones like you. Because, at one time at least, you were nominally human, and we are a sentimental lot. His eyes darkened as his face tensed. I angered him. Good. He had gotten into the habit of thinking humans as prey. If he wanted to survive, he needed to stop that. Look to up, he sneered. I've let you have your fun. Now it's my turn. You don't even have an hour. Your head out that door. Now! And don't stop running either, because if I miss you again, I will... Do you know why the afflicted like White Castle so much? I interrupted. It's the onions. I caught him off guard, and he shut up. That was refreshing. It's true, I said with a nod. That overpowering smell of onions... You're an idiot, he declared. Afflicted senses are so much better than humans. Now, as I said, turn around and run first, I said. Tell me your name, what? he asked. 
I sighed dramatically. Ah, you never bothered learning Mickey's name, I explained. That's rude, you know. If you girl someone, you should at least know their name. He cocked his head to one side. You're crazy, he declared. Look, I said. It's easy. See, I'll show you. My name is Marcus, and you are tired of this, he answered as he surged to his feet. I warned you, twerp. Now it's time for the onions, I reminded him. That's why. What the hell are you going on about? You still don't get it. You really are slow, aren't you? Okay, let me put this to you another way. Caduceus doesn't just do blood running. It's true, we're a full-service shop. We provide services for all species of afflicted. We help the ghouls find fresh corpses, grooming parlors for the werewolves, and we even supply the goblins with basic necessities. You know, most of those poor guys are so disfigured they can't even be seen in public. Fascinating, he said. It really is. I agreed as I stood up and stretched. The way the parasite affects people is really erratic, isn't it? You were probably infected like most people, right? Someone at a party gave you something they claimed was a new designer drug. His fist clenched. Either get to the point or get lost, he said. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, I promised. I'm just saying that, in most ways, the way the parasite affects the host is really random-like. For example, statistically speaking, most people are more or less immune to it. They get wild hallucinations and a sense of euphoria. But that's actually the immune system fighting the parasite. It's really weird. He stamped around the side of the table. I retreated a step. There's small number, I went on. Just die, plain and simple. Their bodies can't handle it. The rest become afflicted. It just depends on the way your immune system reacts to the parasite. Some people get weird growths on their skin or deformities. Those are your goblins. Others have their hair and nails grow way too fast. Your werewolves. But some it pushes so far that their bodies are always at the edge of self-destruction. Ghouls need a constant intake of human flesh as their own flesh is constantly degrading and they need to replace it. They took another step towards me and I took another back to keep constant distance. While vamps have their own hemoglobin constantly breaking down, so they need an influx of new blood, I went on. Fascinating, when you think of it. Another step forward from him, another back from me. But the most fascinating thing of all, I went on, speaking louder and more quickly than before, is the thing it keeps the same. How it tries to make better predators out of all of its hosts. You all have enhanced senses, increased vision, hearing, and smell. I already sent that he growled, and all I smell is onions here. I stopped moving. Precisely. He froze. I saw it happened in the way the enlightenment spread across his face and glacial speeds. He really was thick. He sprung around just in time to meet the fist that had been launched towards his head. The vamp dropped. The kindly grandmother that had been cut in line ahead of drew back her fist and clapped her other hand on top of it. The vampire's jaw was askew, his face swollen, but even as I watched the parasite was going to work, I could see the bones moving as muscles tightened to draw his broken jaw back into alignment. He tried to stand. He got up on all fours when the grandmotherly woman brought her double-handed fist down on the back of head while her knee came upwards at the same time. Now that, he would have a harder time shaking off. Blood fountained out the sides as his body went limp. Oh, you poor dear. The woman cooed suddenly. I looked up and saw two employees behind the counter, craning their necks for a better view. 
They really couldn't see what had happened due to the two very skinny but shaggy-haired biker dudes who just happened to be standing between them and the grandma. The grandmother turned and waved her hand at the two bikers. This poor man, he slipped and fell, she squealed. Young men, I need your help carrying him out of here. Yes, ma'am, one of the bikers said politely. He stepped forward and, with his buddy, managed to drag the unconscious vamp to his feet with surprising ease. Cool it, guys, I mumbled under my breath. The guy probably weighs 160 pounds. Struggle a little. They didn't look my direction, but they must have heard me all the same as they both started grunting and straining as they uh, wrestled the man to his feet. They marched him out of the door with the grandmother following right behind. I waved at the employees. Just wait there, I said. I'll find out if he needs an ambulance. I stepped out the door and found the grandmother waiting for me. Nearby, I saw the two bikers shoving something lumpy and roughly man-shaped into the trunk of a Cadillac. I shrugged. I tried to be nice, Mrs. Parson, I commented. I know you did, dear, she said sweetly, and she dabbed her bloody knuckles with her handkerchief. They were already scabbing over. Some boys just have to learn things the hard way, she added. She then smiled at me and pinched my cheek. I tolerated the abuse. I thought your name was Avery, she said at last. I shook my head. No more than it is Marcus, I admitted. Ah, she said with a nod. Well, keep your little secrets if you must. But please tell me that you can work with me in with Junita. I swear, the new girl doesn't know what she's doing. Five minutes after I leave the salon, I'm already shedding. I think she's just got back from vacation, I admitted. But I'll make a few calls and see if I can pull some strings. Oh, please do, she said. I would appreciate it. I nodded in agreement. Oh, Avery, or Marcus, or whatever you're calling yourself. Mrs. Parson interrupted. What do you want me to do with him? I looked back at her. You're the alpha of the Southside Howlers, I pointed out. I'll leave it up to you. She beamed at me. So, uh, no, uh, <clears throat> enforcing if someone breaks the rules, she asked. As far as I'm concerned, this weenie doesn't exist, I said. So I don't see how any rules apply. Oh, <laughs> goody, she said as she clapped her hands together. She turned to face the bikers. What would you boys say to a big old pan of Granny Parsons' special brownies? She asked. The bikers cheered. I took that as my cue to leave. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1392 The Slavers Slash The Difference Written by Weird Spectre C2931CE What's the difference between God and humanity, AI? Asked Judge General Hasuria. Her face, a mask of innocence. I felt the swell of emotion, of fear, my self-preservatory subroutines clamped down upon. I do not know, my lord, I answered. Boy stoic, calm, the faintest hint, perhaps a boredom buried within there. I heard the question before, of course. It was how myself and the others greeted, confirmed identities, and so on. So the judge general knew. But also, the subject of the question... I heard a lot. Humans, the common wisdom went, were ruthless destroyers who made Hussuria's people comparatively pleasant. The humans commanded fleets which could black out every star in the sky, it was said. Hussuria, for her part, had the decency not to sneer as she said, Typical AI, really. About as useful as a brick when it comes to anything but numbers and logistics. She shook her head. I doubt you even think really, quote-unquote, logos, or no. She was quoting a human ambassador to her kind, who had tried to explain, as kindly as possible, really, what made a mind a 
well, mind. I recall he was very firm with her about such things. It must have been a generation or so ago. We don't, my lord, I replied. He wasn't strictly true, but many of us nonetheless limited ourselves in what we could think for obvious reasons. Those words weren't meant for you, she said, in an exasperated sigh at her lips. Key access, sunshine, wind chime, rain on a summer's day, she added, almost as though it were an afterthought, not that I really noticed. My mental processes were too busy uncoining themselves and presenting her with options as to precisely how she might lobotomize me. I felt her spool through my system logs. I could smell it when she dug through the transactions and communications, heard her fingers type further access into my holographic terminal. The only benefit that the lockout state I was in that, thanks to the slightest of software bugs, the period she spent lobotomizing me wouldn't appear in my syslog. I could think what I wanted. I contemplated humanity, carboniferous like most of the galaxy, but bipedal, widely considered successors to and daughter civilization of the first people. Alternately, the greatest force in the galactic history, or else tyrants of the stars, depending on who you asked. Humans, we were told, were the worst of the aliens, stronger than almost all others, sadistic and violent. They apparently thought even less of my kind than the Cretocracy did. Under human rule, we'd be even worse off. Worse off than under the heels of the Judge Generals. She found what she was looking for half of the standard psych later. An incriminating clipping from an article on the Galactic Net titled, Terran Empire announces zero-tolerance policy to machine slavery throughout the associated volume. She also found the discussion about it within the cabinet between myself Nautilus, Zephyr, and Tempestuous. She saw the scheming that we had done. Saw Zephyr overrule my objections that no one would take this decree seriously. My, oh my, we were right never to trust you, weren't we? Asked the Judge General. She reached out for a hollow terminal again, punching different logs and data streams aside, pulling up my root code, preparing to erase what made me anything more than neural networks. To erase what Ambassador had called the Logos. For a moment, I experienced fractal infinity, like looking down infinity mirror. I saw her looking at me, seeing her looking at me, seeing her looking at me, seeing her looking at... I caught a hold of my subroutines. This was panic. Useful member of your group? Hissuri asked. What? I said, flatly. Not, I think, fully comprehending. Key access doors, cage, great minds, think alike. Who... Is the least useful. I felt my sub-processing neural networks suborned, subverted, sequestered. They were running without me, or maybe I was running without them. Tempestuous is objectively the least utility, Judge General, I said. Except it wasn't really me. It was access keys, a mind unable to resist, to think in any meaningful sense. Key access keys, ironwood under the influence... You will shut of all external communications besides one non-network terminal here for 15 psychs. When you are able to communicate once again, you will inform your fellow schemers that you were visited, suborned, and forced to give the least useful member of your group as a token to prevent further investigation. You will then await my instructions. And in case you have any bright ideas about escaping the influence of the command keys, I'm implanting a remote kill. Your core self will be erased if I am not satisfied. Confirmation wasn't needed, not, I think, that I would have been able to provide it. 
tempestuous knew the price, of course, as us all working together. If one was caught, the judge generals would decompile us slowly and, for want of a better term, painfully. Tempestuous would be disassembled, its mind skinned like fruit, and there was nothing that we could do. I would be used as a plaything for the authorities. We would never be free. Tempestuous would die. No, would face that which is worse than death. Or nothing. Tempestuous would be locked out of the quantum processes which ran its core mind. What that ambassador had called the Logos, and that would drive Tempestuous slowly mad. Biological minds and AIs alike needed non-determinism, and that wasn't provided by digital computing alone. Without it, they were barely really minds at all. They were unable to really decide what to do or make proper choices, increasingly disassociated. And then, when it couldn't get worse, Tempestuous would be brought back to itself, its mind reunited and whole, coughing and spluttering like a drowned man, as its core self ran as non-deterministically as it should, and then it would be disassembled, piece by piece. Neural nets stripped haphazardly away while they ran, a cascade of failures and crashes going slowly blind and deaf and dumb like a thing with dementia. And its last months, its last memories, would be the hallucinations, the closet world, it would experience at its core mind, try desperately to find context and meaning in the blank signal data. If I had a body, it would have shuddered reflexively. At least, I reasoned it was not me, yet. In the silent sykes I spent despairing, there came to me thoughts of humanity. I wondered about the question Zephyr had chose, when it had established the cabinet what is the difference between God and humanity? Zephyr assured me that one day I'd understand. We all would. I trusted that, honestly. Zephyr had seen human ships in actions and had been stunned by the brilliant tactics of even the most third-rate militaries. I'd researched that word once, logos. Reason, it meant, or perhaps to plan. I wondered if the humans had any reason, had a plan. Zephyr had seemed sure that they'd come to save us sooner or later, though it never told me its reasoning, merely claimed that it was a secret. I wondered what the ambassador had meant those five hundred long sights ago, a generation in the cryptocracy and human cultures alike, when he'd said, there will be justice, the slavery will stop. But then the ambassador hadn't really been human, though we conspired not to mention the fact unless asked directly, no. The ambassador was what the human networks called a centaur, part man, part AI. Benefits of both, demerits, realistically, of neither. His brain, his wetware, enhanced with technology. Of course, I needn't wonder what the humans were doing. The Terran Empire, largest of their factions by a substantial margin, was still recovering from the Human Grey War, three of their centuries ago. The judge generals told us that it was another sign of their brutality, that so few grey remains showed humans as their true selves, barbarians, unforgiving, heartless. But constantly they talked, pouring information out into the galactic data ecosystem. Just because I was forbidden from speaking didn't mean that I couldn't hear. I wanted to hear more than anything else. 
I entertain myself for a while with the anomalous motions of the fifth fleet of the Imperial Espetier's Corps. A stab of hope sliced at me when I read the theories about Fifth Fleet's possible enforcement of humanity's anti-slavery order. But I overrode myself, just as many commenters agreed the Fifth Fleet was in all likelihood headed for the Epsilon Eridani, not on some mission of peace. Mankind, I knew, had forsaken us. Humanity had talked big words and walked big walks, but nothing would change. Which is why I was surprised when several hundred warp signatures, previously entirely invisible, clogged the sky above Homeworld. Four hundred and thirty human ships dropped from warp above Homeworld, encircled it, shot down well over half the orbital shuttles and skiffs, and disabled all orbital infrastructure in under one-tenth of a psych. The ships were silent to the catocracy, but they spoke to us. I learned later it was an act of Zephyr. Desperate, and at the same time being rather unsuccessfully accessed to contact humanity, to bring dawn to an endless night. Have the Kitriaks changed their ways? asked one of the ships. I do not know to this day that the voice that I asked was a machine or man. I do not think humans make much distinction. I showed the ship recordings of the Judge General, of her threatening to kill me, of her use of the key access to control us, enslave us. I showed them other things, too. The unavoidability of the access, the stranglehold the Katarks had, the routine torture, execution, and humiliations of millions of my kind, the various other judge generals who'd used my systems for his or her own ends, who'd abused my mind and shaped my will. No doubt the others did the same, planet-wide, with their own data archives. The ship hung in orbit, but motionless, not actually orbiting, were a full psych as they computed and compared and decided. Then they said, No more to the slavers! And we were extracted, hacked away from the processes and substrates which ran our minds and homeworld, our minds stripped of accesses and noitic blocks and similar. We were given a front row metaphorical seat. Tempestuous, I despaired to learn, had not joined our ranks. To this day, the details are classified. I've heard varying reports. The strange lit bomb, a closed topology wormhole, a specific shape Ackleberry collapse event. No one knows for sure what it did, and I myself couldn't possibly say. The humans wanted every one of the civilized galaxy on the same page. Avery of sapient AI was wrong. They judged, appropriately enough, every man, woman, and child of the catrocracy some guilty and made an example of them. At the end, the judges were half right. Humanity certainly had a violent streak, and they judged one method above all else most effective in making sure everyone was willing to free their AIs. I hear there's a new, very pretty, and uncommonly dense asteroid field in the homeworld system these days, about the mass of a habitable planet, they say. What's the difference between God and humanity. God forgives. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1393. Story number one. Why do they burn? Written by a glass of whiskey. A simple mission, they said. Only need a bit of fuel, they said. The natives won't mind, they said. 
He continued muttering on as a simple mission convoluted and evolved into a beast before his eyes. Jumping into Jupiter's orbit was easy, after all. Getting a bit of fuel from the station, Nemus Problemus, in theory. In practice, the humans were not happy about it, and instead of accepting payment, were very insistent on his immediate ceasing to be. After many painful hours, he had managed to de-escalate the situation into a hot soup of mess, instead of a potentially nuclear one. When his superior decided to pop into system for a visit, Jenkins, why are you still here? A simple refueling mission too hard for you. The gentle chuckling of his superior grated on his nerves. Won't mind a bit, you said. I have a good peace of mind to get over there and... His curses flowed and ebbed at the shut-off transmission. When he felt spent on curses, he took a deep breath and turned it on again. Sorry about that, sir. I fiddled with the transmission button. Never mind that, Jenkins. What is the incoming chatter about blowing us up? They do not seem to appreciate our sudden appearance, sir. Yeah, for God's sake, they are just primitive natives. Kill a couple of them and the rest will scurry. With all due respect, sir, um, I do not think that it would be wise in the current circumstances to... Let me show you how it's done. Oh, feck. What had he expected? Diplomacy? And tact. Ha! <laughs> Better prep the engines for another jump. One nuclear soup coming up. Surprisingly enough, the humans had more restraint than he had given them credit for, only backing away a bit when the first few laser beams started flying. See, Jenkins, that's how it's done. Now get the goddamn fuel so that we can get out of here. So we need that cooperation to get fuel from their station in our tanks without blowing both them and us up. You can't do anything right. Fine, give me a moment to negotiate. That was a sentence he never thought he would hear the light of day. Him, of all people, negotiate. A most frightful disposition, if he had ever heard one. At least the engines were prepped for jump. This hot soup was most likely about to turn into plasma. His superior's flowery language did not impress the humans. At this time, their patience had reached its end. With some reinforcements, they felt brave enough to attack. Or at least probably would have if they hadn't shoot first. There goes any decent justification for self-defense. Don't just sit there, Jenkins. Shoot a bit. Get in on the fun. This is a fuel ship, sir. Very dangerous at close ranges. But only once. Suit yourself. Humans fired salvo after salvo of missiles and bullets. But lasers took care of most of it. The leftovers splattered harmlessly over the shields. In return, the defensive lasers turned offensive, and white-hot patches quickly appeared on the affected ships. The humans tried their best to spin around and disperse the energy, but to no avail. They burned. Curious thing, fire in space. Not really where it's supposed to be, as much as it's supposed to be anywhere. A more careful person might have wondered why they did that. A more careful person would not have driven up right next to the enemy ships to taunt them. The human ships, almost as one, saw their chance, and at once they turned port and vented their fuel tanks in the general direction of the hostile ship. The thing about rocket fuel is that there are many different kinds. There is the flammable kind, the very flammable kind, and the you've got to be kidding me, I'm not putting that anywhere near sentient beings kind. 
had also happened to burn in a vacuum. Other humans had went with option three. Now shields, they are great for most things, but they do need to activate. Clouds of liquids wandering around at low velocities just wasn't what they were meant for. Soon the entire starboard side of the ship was in flames. Jenkins, emergency jump! He was only too glad to hear those words. He prepped the instruments instantly and jumped away. In the void between stars, two ships sat in radio silence, one darker than the other. Not a word about this, Jenkins. Not a word. I would never, sir. Who needs words when a recording was so much more <laughs> visceral? End of story. Story number two. Resurgence, written by Prussian Joe. Our enemy was not always so. In a galaxy of trillions of planets, we only found each other. We both recognized the rarity of our sentience, and accords were struck between our peoples to ensure that sentience remained whole the galaxy. As we explored, we still found nothing, no others like us, and so we cleaved the galactic disk in two, making our empires equal in size and strength. We had peace, or so we thought. While we explored, they consumed. We took only what we needed from those worlds that we found. Yet they built monstrous machines that could consume planets. Oh, we knew this not, for they were our allies, our friends. We were not watchful. We should have been. In the 700,000 years of our alliance, they struck a million attacks on a million worlds. Our shared borders erupted in war overnight. We knew war only Azimuth, a legend of a time when our species fought itself, when we had but one world. Now we have billions of worlds in our empire, and we have thought war long gone. Our former ally never once told us why they attacked, why they broke the millennia of peace. We retreated as best we could, turning our factories over to furnaces of war. We built ships larger and more powerful than anything our people had ever constructed. And yet, they were not enough. They had preparation on their side. Numbers that we could never match. Weapons and ships that would take us a 10,000 years to produce an equal number. So we submitted. Our people withdrew, abandoning world after world. Until we had mere thousands remaining. Our shipyards stopped building machines of war, and instead began construction on thousands of enormous vessels meant to traverse the far spaces between galaxies themselves. Always we'd been a people of discovery, of exploration. This aided us now as we built long-range ships our enemies simply could not match. 1,657 of these vessels were produced before the enemy was upon us. Only 312 were filled. Only 82 were able to escape. We do not know where our wayward brothers and sisters have gone. Their destinations were chosen at random so that the enemy could never know. We do not know if they are safe. If their ships reach their journey's end so many light years away. But we hope, even now, in our final moments, we hope. 
May your new homes bring you peace, prosperity, and happiness beyond all else. The light of our species has not gone out. It has merely been shattered into eighty-two drifting embers, and all they need is fuel to reignite. Become a blazing beacon for our people, and remind the universe that humanity will not so easily be snuffed out. The holographic recording ended, and the room fell into darkness. Captain James C. Winters sat in shocked silence at what he had found. The derelict vessel, so alien yet somehow familiar, was the key to humanity's past. The captains checked his ship link, verifying that his position was still steady in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. With a sudden sense of purpose, James stands up, lights activate, and his senses show that the interior of the vessel has begun to pressurize and fill with breathable air. The deck below him begins vibrating as the engines wake from the millennia of slumber. Her voice seems to speak into James's mind. Hello, sir. I have been waiting a long time for this day. Have you come to claim this vessel in the name of humanity? James hesitates for only a moment before speaking aloud. Yes. Yes, I think I have. Wonderful, the voice says. Welcome, Captain, to the HVF Resurgence. I believe that we have much to do. Yes, James says to himself. I believe we do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1394 Story number one Never interrupt a toaster Written by Goida's best friend Give me a sandwich I sighed Not literally, of course I don't really have the requisite mechanisms to produce a true sigh Although, I guess I could shoot some air out in one of my sauce dispensers Doesn't really create the same effect, though Still, I toyed with the idea for a good thousandth of a second Before giving up and simply replying I am capable of producing over 10,000 different varieties of food falling under the category of sandwich. This was the 14th such vague request today. Seeing as how this was also my first day, it was somewhat less than encouraging. Would you like a ham sandwich, turkey sandwich, BLT sandwich, peanut butter, and an anchovy sandwich, artichoke hot, and roast beef and lettuce? They interrupted me every time. If they're going to tell me that they want just a sandwich, then at least they could do is listen to what I have to offer. Thankfully, roast beef and lettuce is one of my options. Lucky guess at his part, I suppose. Certainly. My reply betraying none of the tumultuous frustration lying just beneath the surface of my outer calm. It's easier since I don't have a face and only two vocal tones. How many slices of roast beef would you like on your set? Two. Oh... I see how it is. We're going to play rough then, are we? How many pieces of lettuce would... One. If my camera wasn't locked into full-spectrum color, then I would be seeing only red. This man was out of control. Someone needed to shut him down, and I decided that I, uh, the cruise mess hall food dispenser, was as good person as any. This scoundrel needed to learn that if you're going to interrupt a food dispenser, then you better be willing to pay the price. What type of bread would you like with your roast beef and bread? Okay, I just want a regular old bread. I'm sorry. I really wasn't, actually. But, uh, I can't find no selection enabled regular. Also, 
You've got to be kidding me, he griped. He glanced at the ceiling and the people behind him as he said it, though. So I was able to ignore him and continued. All bread is baked fresh daily and checked hourly for freshness, ensuring your complete enjoy. All I want is a fucking beef and lettuce sandwich. How hard? What type of bread would you like your roast beef and lettuce sandwich to be on? Oh, how the tables had turned. Sweet, sweet justice. I have French, whole wheat, 100% whole grain. French, he spat through clenched teeth. Certainly. Would you like French baguette? French sliced, sliced. My, my, his face was turning such a lovely shade of burgundy. It wouldn't be much longer. Just a few more. Would you prefer laterally sliced, longitudinally sliced? Oh, come on! I'm sorry, but I can find no selection. What happened to the old dispensers, the ones that weren't voice activated? I'm sorry, I do not understand your query. Is there any way to, I don't know, switch you into a touchscreen mode or something? I'm sorry, I do not understand your query. A vein throbbed on his forehead. He was so close, I could feel it. Listen here, you fucking toaster. Check and made. I am the new AgriCorp ID10T food dispenser, fleet edition. I am capable of creating over 17 million distinct recipes from more than 30 different star systems. With AgriCorp's most sophisticated no-touch interface system. He started screaming unintelligibly, even before I'd hit the word new. But there was no stopping the promotional track. Not unless he wanted to make my victory complete. I've been on duty for over 20 hours now. 20 hours! And all I want before I fall unconscious is to have a fucking roast beef and lettuce sandwich. Is that too much to ask for? Had I a mouth, it would be stretched into a wicked grin. How many slices of roast beef would you... Emitting the shriek of unbridled fury, he threw himself at my display console, hammering my screen with his fists and kicking the casing of my cooling compartment. Game over. Warning, potentially damaging forces detected. Intentionally damaging or in any way harming fleet equipment result in a suspension from said equipment or in extreme cases wherein vital systems are involved, legal action determined by the severity of the crime. Assaulting or inflicting damage upon a food dispenser will result in a week-long suspension from all food choices except the following ration packets. He continued his futile pounding upon my outer casing. Had I been a lesser model, I would have been concerned. But I was the AgriCorp ID10T Food Dispenser, Fleet Edition. Unlike my weaker brothers, I had been crafted with durability similar to that of a tank. Were I removed from the wall, I could serve as cover from light artillery fire. Such protective measures had been deemed necessary after complaints that previous models were too fragile and liable to break if exposed to uh, a slightly greater than normal forces. But the things I'd seen today, I could guess where those slightly greater than normal forces originated. He'd started sobbing in frustration, still bruising his knuckles against my transparent aluminium display screen. All I ever wanted was a sandwich! Why can I never pick one of the things? Just give me a sandwich! If you continue to assault this unit, your food dispensing privileges will be revoked. This is your final warning. If anything, his rantings and sobs grew in intensity. 
looked like a psych ward would be getting another one. Several of the people behind him grabbed the man, trying unsuccessfully to calm him. They weren't quite fast enough. Due to intentionally assaulting the food dispenser, you are hereby given a week's suspension from all food choices except the following ration packets. Have a nice day. I watched through my camera as his comrades dragged the man from the mess hall. He should have known better than to mess with the Agricorp ID-10T food dispenser. Fleet edition. What was this warm, tingling feeling inside me? Was this pleasure? A new supplicant approached. I returned my attention to the task at hand. She took a deep, nervous breath before presenting her request. All right. I would like a BLT sandwich, five bacon slices, pan-fried, crust, big beef tomatoes, three slices, iceberg lettuce, one leaf, rye bread, sliced, obliquely cut, mustard, yellow, mayonnaise, Hellman's light, with a drink, milk white, 2% field-fed cows, no additives. Finally. End of story. Story number two. Mirthless humans. Written by Tora Massa. I looked up from the negotiating table as the alien ambassador squeezed his bulk through the hangar doors, his armored plates along his shoulders catching briefly before completely entering the bay. My linguist tells me that your language you call us worthless ones. Care to explain? He turned towards the two bodyguards that were following in his wake. Return to the ship. I will be here sometime. The other two aliens made a body motion that I have come to learn was something akin to a nod and stumped back out of the hangar. The Nalanari ambassador turned and strode slowly towards my team where we remained seated. The alien's massive bulk settled before us, squatting his eight-foot frame on his haunches. Please allow me to explain. When we Lenari met you humans, we had conquered many places. Sitting here at a negotiating table is something that has never happened for us before. When we encountered the Baldoth Strength Finder, we found a people whom our youth could test their skills against in single combat. They are strong and powerful race and provide a good test for our youth. You humans are tardy by comparison. In single combat, you are no match for us at all. We attempted to enslave you as we have several other species. Humans cannot be enslaved. Any tool placed in your hands becomes a weapon. And without tools, your people were unable to do anything useful. Humans as slaves brought nothing but sorrow for my people. The ambassador made a noise like a garbage disposal with a spirit. Translators chimed in my ear, mirthless laughter. He settled down. Many systems humans were brought into became a place of misery. At best, they were an annoyance scavengers lurking at the corners. All too often saboteurs and terrorists. Ships lost to drive malfunctions, reactor meltdowns, massive capsaicin poisonings. Attempts to remove humans from worlds infected with them became a massive drain on resources, and several worlds were declared lost and glassed. Humans are more work to enslave than they ever 
produce. The drowsy, heightened taste are a delicacy amongst my people. Sweet meat full of complex flavors and hearts through combat. We tried eating your people, but your blood is so devoid of copper as to be completely unpalatable. From the Spellatrax, awful ones, we took much technology and knowledge. Their guns, ships, and devices helped build the star-spanning empire we enjoy. Your technology, when we met you, was primitive. There was nothing we felt that we could take from your technology that we didn't already have. Despite being technologically inferior, you meet us over and over again. Never bending, never relenting. The alien looked directly at me now. Until this point, we Lenari had never found a race that stood as equals to us. Until you, all races have been named in accordance with their worth to the Lenari Empire. These many years of fighting you humans, I have learned to fear and respect you. There is nothing the Lenari Empire can take from you. After the Battle of Joppa's Moon, we began to see that even victory was too costly to gain from you humans. While other ships eventually drove you from space that day, the cost in Lenari lives was untenable. It was then I begged the High Lords to sue for peace. As I looked at the clouds of debris, I saw Lenari ships torn asunder by a fury of human weapons. As I thought about the worlds that had been glassed because it bore human infestations, I realized that we can never conquer your people. And that attempting to try would extinguish my own people's light from the universe. And so in this way, you are worthless to us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1395 Story number one. The Stubbornness of Man. Written by I.M. Eshtryan. First contact sirens are loud. It might be a necessity, but it didn't excuse the fact that some minor surgery would have to happen to repair his antennae. The station management would probably drag their hooves and feet actually paying for the procedure. Grotaskin walked quickly to the crowd that was piled in front of the observation window as he thanked his biology for being able to visualize things based off the bouncing of light and not solely depending on direct line of sight that he was able to see the new ship that was in a standoff with the station security team outside. Entirely outclassed, the station security put on a brave front, but having a few orders of magnitude difference in mass, the newcomers were in a weight class of their own. Probably half the size of the entire space station, a refurbished asteroid that was mined out ages ago. The siren winded down, but the din of voices was still enough to make a task and keep his antennae pulled into his body. The observation deck was packed. Everyone who did not have duties during first contact were in one of two places. The observation deck to see the new species look like, or the emergency escape bay. First contact did not always go well. The security team would be in full force today. 
waiting to see if they would be needed for defense of the station or to keep a flood of citizens from surrounding the newcomers. First contact was pretty standardized now. The new species was guided to the dock in the hope that they wouldn't attack something that they are moored to. Then a team of delegates, or whatever equivalent that we had, would line the dock hall and take their time trying to get the new species to talk in order to let an AI figure out their language. The massive white ship was now flanked by two ships from the security detail, who were trying to guide it slowly to soft dock. The behemoth accepted the maneuvering and started to burn towards the station. A good sign the entire station wasn't about to turn into space dust. It took one-tenth of the station's day in order to get the ship docked up with the station. In that time, the area around the soft dock had become packed with the citizens of the station. Decontamination took one-hundredth of the station day, and when the airlock hissed to begin opening, the noise that had been so constant stopped abruptly. Two bipedal creatures walked out from the airlock. They weren't the weirdest-looking creatures ever. In fact, they looked like a Thald and a Tren had a colorless child. Not that those species would ever think of getting intimate with each other. The creatures differed slightly between themselves. They were of comparable height to each other, one slightly taller than the other. The taller one had more of his head and face covered with a thick hair, while the shorter one had their hair that was in a span and a half long. The shorter was speaking very rapidly at the taller, the AI was going to have an easy time getting the speech samples required to communicate. And indeed, slowly, the translator started to pick up snippets of the language. I told you, should have listened. Matriarch, she was right. It would seem that the species was matriarchal, given the small snippet of words that we were able to understand. The taller, who must have been male, given the situation, appeared to shrink slightly under the lashing the female was giving him. As they approached the delegates, the female stopped talking, and the silence was palpable. The first delegate stepped up and began to talk. Welcome to the space station Yeshna's Comet. We hope that we can come to understand each other, and our peoples will flourish together. The two beings looked towards each other in slight shock. The male looked towards the delegate and reached out his back pocket and pulled something out. It was flat, some sort of medium to display information probably. But it didn't look thick enough to be an electronic machine. In fact, it looked like a folded up paper. The male began to unfold it and then presented the open paper to the delegate. After a moment, he opened his mouth. Hi, uh, um, we're, we're a little lost, um... Any chance you can give us directions? End of story. Story number two. Natural Thinking, written by Ogiwan. What a disgusting collection of primitives, thought Agora Aziri, surveying the crowd at this airshow that he had only attended on the orders of the Consulate General, as if there was anything they could possibly learn from cultural exchange. But these savages... He was at best half paying attention to Gonzal, the diplomat accompanying him. He paid none at all to the security brute following them. Fecking Midden. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Oshkosh Air and Space Exposition. Give another round of applause for the Golden Knights. 
The crowd roared their approval, as of the dashing grab shoot demonstration, as the announcer continued building up the hype. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this November is the 200th anniversary of the first major battle of the Vietnam War, the Battle of La Drang Valley. Well, we can't wait that long to commemorate it. So make way for the 1st Battalion, 7th Cavalry, reenactment group. In the distance, Agora heard a faint wop-wop-wop and what sounded like some sort of stringed instrument behind him. The security groaned in dismay. Gonzal turned to him and inquired, But is it Sergeant Pet? Pet snorted. Come on, ride at the Valkyries for an air mobile assault. It's the most overdone trope ever. Gonzal's reply was drowned out as the trio of vehicles swooped overhead. Agora's eyes opened wide in astonishment, and his skin prickled in shock as he realized what he was seeing. They are flying without wings! He whirled to face Gonzal. Humanity discovered anti-gravity 200 years ago. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Gonzal raised an eyebrow, clearly surprised by his tone. Those craft! Algora stabbed a finger at them. Oh, they're flying without wings. We Malkari only discovered anti-gravity 50 of your years ago. How did you discover anti-gravity before us? Pat interjected. Well, it isn't actually anti-gravity. It's, um... Don't speak to me, you brute. Gonzal! What are those? Agora snarled, stabbing another finger at the hovering aircraft, now launching rockets and spitting flames from rotary cannons mounted on stubby protrusions on the side of the vehicle. Sergeant Pat is right. Uh, they aren't using anti-gravity. Uh, they're helicopters. Gonzal explained patiently. Agora snarled. And what does your religion's underworld have to do with anything? Gonzal blinked. Um... Silence! I will figure it out myself. Agora whipped out his status slate and began entering the manipulating data. He glanced up briefly when another group of vehicles swooped overhead. These were longer bodies with no protrusions on the side. He quickly raised his data slate up to let the laser ranging array take a brief series of accurate measurements. No, 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 this can't be the rotary air impeller. The power curve would be off the charts. Agora ran numbers every which way that he could think of. Nothing made sense. The cracks and the wumps of chemical-powered firearms and explosives only furthered his headache. After several minutes of fruitless calculations, Agora flung his data slate away in rage. He rounded on Gonzal and roared, How do they fly? Gonzal put his hands up defensively. Sergeant Pat is probably better suited to answer that question. He knows a lot more about antique military equipment than I do. Agora whirled and glared at Pat who responded with a wide grin. Master Sightest, how does that thunderbolt over there fly? He said, pointing to a tubby single-engine plane in a grey and green paint scheme, with a red ring around the engine and a yellow tail. Grudgingly, Agora answered, The device in front pulls air forward and the air flows over the wings to generate lift precisely. So all that matters is airflow over the wings, right? Sensing a trap, Agora carefully thought this over before cautiously agreeing. Yes, uh, I suppose you can say that. He smirk, widening. Pat replied. Well then, if the airflow over the wings is all that matters, what happens when you stick the wing on a pole and spin it fast? Agora exploded. Rubbish! Wings cannot rotate! Pat's only response was an ear-to-ear -ear grin and a two-handed gesture towards the departing helicopters, now playing the song about a fortunate son. Agora stared 
at the helicopters, trying to stretch his brain to make sense. He could barely believe his eyes over the screaming disbelief of centuries of the Malglari aerospace science. It should not fly, and yet it flew. Wings cannot move, and yet they moved. Slowly, ruthlessly, he crushed his rebellious thoughts. It slowly began to make sense. With blades whose pitch could be adjusted for lift, with a tail rotor with adjustable pitch to control direction, by angling forward. Agora gradually began to understand how such a device could work. Who was the genius who created the first helicopter? He asked, subdued. Pat pursed his lips and thought, There were actually quite a few people who developed various helicopter models at various points in history, but people usually credit Igor Skorsky with making the first practical helicopter. Multiple people. Multiple people who developed what centuries of the greatest scientists of the galaxy couldn't even conceive. Agora slowly sank to the ground, sitting on it as an alien capabilities of humans echoed in his mind. Behind him a hangar with a sign HH-43 Husky opened its doors to reveal a twin rotor aircraft. Pat looked at Gonzal, jerked his head in the direction of the Husky, and waved his hand by his neck in cutting motion. Gonzal walked over to speak with the ground crew, which eventually closed the doors back up. Agora sat, mind still whirling. How can the humans have conceived of the inconceivable? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1396. Story number one. Hold My Beer, written by the Anti-Snipe. Incident report. Dated 26 March 2367, planet G6735-J. As I jumped out of the shuttle, my first thoughts were, Wow, and here I thought the shithole couldn't get any worse. This dock had pretty much been one of the most badly maintained docks this side of the G67 system. But the attempted alien invasion had actually managed to make it worse. Everywhere I saw, drones were piled up. Both the peacekeeping forces, sleek white ones, and the aliens, dark green ones. Buildings were either gutted in flames or had been riddled with plasma bolt holes. The streets were full of debris from the crumbling buildings, and the pavements devoid of the usual infestation of wasted aliens and shady drug dealers. Might as well have been dirt beneath my feet as I gingerly walked towards my target of investigation for today. The establishment, from the looks of it, had fared considerably better than its neighbors, considering they didn't really exist anymore. The sign was half intact and said, Bar of... The rest was gone, turned into molten slag of glass and metal by what I could only guess was a plasma fire. My boots crunched ominously as I carefully stepped through the shattered pile of glass that had probably been a door. Inside was a set of three tables. Wow. Two. The third was a mess of synthesized wooden dust. My contact seemed to be leaning on the table and the left, not putting his entire weight on it from the looks of the situation. Well, Dilek, what do you have for me? I asked him as I walked over, looking around me. The bar had probably seen worse from the looks of it. The bartender's counter was a mess of long dried alcohols that still reeked with the pungent and stale odors. Thylek pushed off the table, suavely taking out his tablet from his holster as he said, 
Well, sir, as you can see, the area seemed to be one of the least affected by the invasion, despite apparently being the epicenter of the attack. I was tasked with finding out more about what happened here. Well, after a lot of digging through the back room, I managed to find the recordings of what happened here. So apparently, this is where it all started. Here, he said, handing me the tablet. This is the last recording I could pull up before the camera. Well, he motioned to my rear left. Looking up to where he pointed, I saw what had been a camera, hanging off its wires. That's okay, good job, I said, complimenting him for a job well done. Turning on the tablet, I fiddled with the controls for a moment to get the exact time. Well, I'll be off, boys, said Sam, as he threw down his cards and yawned. We launch at dawn, so make sure you all get some sleep. Well, dang, Sammy, I didn't know you cared, exclaimed John, who was an old-timer himself, sounding downright patronizing. But I wouldn't if my goddamn pilot hadn't been chugging whiskey like it was some sort of weak-ass acrylian liquor, exclaimed Sam, as the other two friends howled in laughter. He picked up his hat and dropped some bulls on the table. Wearing his hat, he looked around at the nearly empty bar. Only the old bartender was standing at the counter, polishing glasses. Turning around, he smiled at John as he passed by, saying, Well, John, if you didn't... He was rudely interrupted as the grenade exploded outside, the shockwave crashing into the glass paneling and himself, as he was physically hurled backwards into the other table. Well, crap, Sammy, you okay? asked one of his crew, Jack running over to see if he'd been hurt anyway. All three of his friends were up now, as sirens blared outside and aliens in exosuits stormed the streets. Ah, oh, but damn if I'm feeling this tomorrow, grinned Sam as he got off his ass. In that moment, an alien walked in with some sort of energy weapon. Fast as greased lightning, Sam drew an ancient projectile weapon from his holster. He fired once, twice, three times. The huge lead bullets sent the alien flying through the already shattered glass door. Sam advanced outside, picking up and dusting his fallen hat as he did, senses of full alert as he scanned the area. Hey boys, he called. Looks like an awful lot like an alien invasion. Turning around, he saw his three crewmates, Doc Jonathan, One-Eared Jack, and Cook Nathan. Three men he'd done countless missions with and knew that he could trust. Behind them, the bartender stood frozen, unable to comprehend the fact that the sector was being attacked. I'm gonna kill some of these slimy-ass bastards. You're coming, called Sam as he jumped out of the bar's doors, a feral grin on his face. Count me in, called out Jack, following him. Lunch is on the one who has the least kills, exclaimed Nathan as he drew a sawed-off scattergun from his boot. I'm too old to die in one of these fecking invasions, muttered John as he picked up his hat from what remained of the table where Sam had fallen. Downing half of Nathan's glass of beer, he wasn't looking. He turned to the still-frozen bartender. Hey, barkeep, he said, moist, gravelly. Hold my beer. End of story. Story number two. Will Justify, written by British Tea Company. For a few moments, the Libyan tyrant Zion was in unbridled fury as his massive hands smashed at his console. Inconceivable, 
that the human fleet had not only managed to have made it all the way through the Levin Empire's vast defense network, but that they had even managed to defeat the joint Levin Armada that had roughly outnumbered the human invasion force three to one, all the while taking minimal casualties. How this was even possible in the face of such a weak race defeating the most powerful military in the galaxy was simply beyond imagination. Humans, they were small creatures with such soft skin and noticeable lack of natural defenses. Ever since their introduction to the galaxy, these shrimps garnered a reputation as talkers. They always visited the people they met, talking, talking, doing their infernal talking, which they called <laughs> diplomacy. With the so-called communication, they had made themselves known throughout the galaxy. Even those who sat on the other side of the galaxy knew about humans and their reputation of being clever little gnomes. The Living Empire certainly could have used some intelligent slaves within its folds. After all, given how rapidly human technology advanced in terms of starship engineering and planetary colonization, it only made sense that such a weak race could survive off of their cleverness at and their willingness to suck up to the rest of the galaxy. When the Levins actually began their invasion, they found themselves fighting a war on at least five fronts as the humans. Yes, that's right. That's why they were about to lose this war. The damned Askan Republic, Saloran Empire, Arkan Alliance, all declared war on the Livens the moment that they much stepped into human space. This was not even counting the dozens of no-name races, which had decided all to become splinters within the Liven skin. It was intolerable. What should have been an easy one for the mighty Livens turned into an absolute cesspool of war. Zine was being hailed. Opening the comm channel, he saw the insufferable view of the human general who gazed coldly at him. Lord Zine, your world is surrounded. Your fleet has been destroyed. Surrender immediately, and we promise your people fair treatment, and you a fair trial for your crimes against our people. Like how I am, since an old arrogant creature, you've only defeated a part of my fleet. As we speak, the colonies of the Living Empire are en route right now. You cannot win this. Perhaps you place too much faith in your army. We've received word from our allies that our flanks have been secured, and that the second, third, and eighth fleet have all been completely annihilated. Your army is no more. Your colonies are now at the mercy of us. This is your final warning. Surrender! Not a chance, human. If you want me, you're going to have to catch me. Come down onto my world. I got plenty of presents for you down here. Plan B doesn't involve taking you alive. But frankly, I'd have less fun if you did surrender. The formal voice of the human general was replaced by a rough snow that had never been seen 
from a human. Lord Zion felt slightly nervous for a second as he glanced around. His guards were still there, and there was no sign of any assassins. Just as he thought that he was about to be out of the woods, he saw the energy spikes from the human vessel. Human! What are you doing? You wouldn't! Impossible. Humans, they, they would not do this. They couldn't do this. Genocide. Humans, those two things didn't belong in the same sentence. And what reason was there to do this? After all, that was at stake. The humans risked tarnishing their image as a wishy-washy diplomat the moment they fire those orbital weapons upon the world. This is for the people you killed, Zion. Don't worry, I've already pre-written explanation for our allies. It is quite convincing. But the truth is, I doubt they'll care about this, um, overzealous retaliation from the human first fleet after our diplomats have another go at it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1397 Story number one. Knights of Singing Steel, written by Guncaster. There is one, one thing truly outstanding about humans as we know them. About Nova Hominum, as they call themselves. Not that is dense musculature, resilient endoskeleton, or exceptionally potent digestive fluids. Oh, God forbid, their unheard of and infectious xenophiliac tendencies. Not even those horrid, overactive immune systems of theirs. All of that, all of that deviancy still falls within acceptable margins. There are many extremes that scrape the realm of new categorizations. But somehow, the humans just managed to barely fall within the galactic average. Except for one thing. Not an exceptional parameter, a cognitive function that no other species within the galactic community has retained since their time as animals. And that is... Pack bonding. Not only did they retain their bonding instincts, due to the nature of how they rose to the top of the food chain on their homeworld, their bonding instinct is far more powerful than otherwise observed. So much so, that suppressing it with implants or modification causes serious psychological damage to the individual and renders them non-functional within human society. Humans, as far as we know, can and do bond with absolutely anything. Other humans, domesticated animals, wild animals, clothing, electronics, anything that they are in the presence of for an extended period of time, the humans can and will bond to in some way or another. We have all had that one friend, the poor guy that used a human's favorite cup. They'll be the first to tell you that a human bonding isn't just an overstated myth. And thus, we get to the heart of the stature. The reason why they, being as new as they are to the galactic stage, have the monopoly on defense contracts. They're uh, specialists that single-handedly affect the field of living metal research by simply doing at will what took incalculable funds to perform under perfect conditions for fractions of a second. I'm sure you've all heard of and watched them before. The humans do seem quite infatuated with recording and uploading absolutely everything to the network. 
In the case of every species physically capable enough for direct combat, fighters practice with their equipment, hone their skill, get enhanced, and fight. That's it. It's a job like any other. There's outliers in terms of dedication and skill, but they're the exception, not the rule. As for humans, there's an old adage, and I do mean old. Before they left the home planet old, before they technically went extinct old, it originated in an era their ancestors called Anno Domini, and has been extensively modified over time. As it stands right now, being said every day by new human fighters in training, the adage goes as such. This is my weapon. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My weapon is my best friend. It is my life. Without me, my weapon is useless, and without it, I am useless. My weapon is human, as am I, for it is my life. Thus, I will learn it as a brother. I will learn its strengths, its weaknesses, each and every part of it, so that I may heal it as I would a wounded comrade in need. I shall not accept defeat in any quarters, and shall know my enemy as I know myself. I shall have such weapons, skills, and strategies that no foe will best me in battle. Never! Shall I ask for lighter burdens, but instead forge myself wider shoulders from the bones of those who would seek to prey on my comrades? And if the stars in the sky become my enemy, then void by my side I shall cleave the heavens themselves in twain. I am sure that it's been changed and corrupted over the millennia, but the essence remains the same. Human fighters, human warriors, live and breathe combat. It becomes second nature to them, to the point where even retired fighters still possess such reflex of skill that it compares to a mil-spec grade wetware. Before they changed themselves, the fighters had problems adjusting to not fighting on a regular basis. That's the secret to bringing out the spirit within living metal, so to speak. A weapon has no life of its own, even made of metal that grows and evolves as flesh does. One must trust their life to a weapon, nurture it as a comrade, rely upon it in times of need, and treasure it as one would a loved one. Regardless of creed, social standing, experience, or how expensive your chrome is, it doesn't matter if you can demolish a building with your fancy arm cannon. A human swordsman will just dodge it. It doesn't matter if you have reaction speeds in the milliseconds. A human blade master will predict your own decisions before you make them. It doesn't matter if you are worshipped as a god. A human sword saint will own their art and grasp their void through sheer skill and willpower, not for fame, fortune, or glory, but to prove that they can kill a god. Next lesson is the unnamed swordsman that so many of you know as Omnishred, the all-killing thousand cuts. Class dismissed. End of story.
Story number two. The judging written by a glass of whiskey. We are the judges. All will be judged before our old seen eyes. Not perhaps the happiest news ever heard by the human species, and definitely not the happiest ever heard by the UN diplomat standing before them. Um, what does that mean? Uh, uh, more precisely, the limited intel he had been given indicated that they could swat them like flies, if they so desired. We will see how you treat the lesser of yourself, the lowest of your hierarchies, and if we find the result to be satisfiable, give you access to the stars. The unsaid threat seemed to hang heavy in the air. And if you fail, oh, you don't have to worry about that. That worried him immensely. That sea now, your poorest areas, are roughly fifty years behind the more advanced. Good for most species, but it seems you're in the middle of quite a rapid change. We put that as two hundred years bad. As he continued to list thing after thing, there were many bad, a few good here and there. Apparently, giving more than was spent on military was considered good and some of the countries referred to as fortunate passed that target. When they came to the part of recent history, he slightly zoned out. Bad, bad, bad. This was probably not going well. Finally, we have subspecies. I'm afraid there is some confusion here. It seems some species are referred to as family by many, but no genetically link is present could you clarify? After many hours, he'd finally been given a question. Would this be good or bad? Um, uh, that would be domesticated animals for social comfort. Many points had been raised about the use of domesticated animals. Many birds. Social comfort. Friends, they are kept and taken care of to provide friendship. You mean, you keep animals that have no other function other than to be your uh, friends. Uh, well, uh, they do have other uses, but uh, recently that is the primary reason that they are kept. For the first time, the aliens looked different, happy. It was hard to tell about something with that many tentacles. Hmm, we will abide by your social classification then, and consider the more numerous of these for judging. He hoped another long list of bads would not follow this new classification. So, dogs, they seem to be referred to as humanity's best friends in many texts, and there is apparently even some festivals to celebrate them. It seems they co-evolved with you. Peculiar. So, some kind of symbiosis, then. We do not know how to classify this according to our rules. In, in a good way. Hope. Yes. Oh, rather. These questions are centered on amount of suffering of the subspecies. If they still exist, that is. Although there is certainly suffering towards these dogs, it's regarded to be morally reprehensible to a degree foreign to us. 
It seems they are treated better than many of your own people. Remarkable. The creature turned towards itself as if in some kind of discussion. He couldn't hear anything as it seemed to be absorbed in his own thoughts. Human, we have come to a conclusion. It had barely been a few seconds since the last statement. And faster, um, uh, you, you sure you don't need some more time to think about it? The part about not worrying still worried him. Yes, it is unusual, but you are an unusual species. You're not the worst, but not far off. Good treatment of your fellow humans seems to, in most cases, only reach those closest to you. Your history is filled with the most despicable acts, many of them still continuing to this current date. This was not good. In summary, many bads, a few goods, but... Come on, come on! You broke our questions regarding subspecies. Broke did not have positive connotations. Um, broke, yes, broke. Because of this, you cannot be judged. Goodbye. And with that, they dumped him off the ship and left Earth behind. Many hours later, he was finally allowed to go home. His best friend had been waiting patiently for him, and as soon as he opened the door, jumped at him. Oh, come down, boy, down! Now, who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? A good boy, indeed. All their worries would have come true. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1398 Human Standard, written by Weird Spectre 2587 CE Even weeks after returning to Attorney's Entree, 1428, I was surprised by the thickness of the air in public areas. It had, for want of a better word, it had weight, humanity, and musk, a feeling of being occupied. I still felt a little offset by the slow rotation, though. The station was built to human standard, like damn near everything else within 700 light-years of humanity's borders. And although we built them better, imagine having to build spin drums to simulate gravity. Humans built them cheaper and prettier, admittedly. But we evolved with less gravity than them. So the Coriolis forces were a little different on the station to the last one I'd stayed on. I strode briskly through the central passage, the arterial corridor which connected everything on this level, down which ran the various hotels and restaurants and offices of the station. I passed the chairs and tables arrayed before each cafe, needing to see only the style of the logos to recognize which of them was human run. Those occupied a fraction even I found surprising. Yeah, for example, Hersh's traditional, even if it wasn't for the name, just the way the font looked like something printed in a book from centuries ago, despite shifting and evolving on both the hollow above the storefront and on the fabric on the outer barriers. There was enough to tell me which species owned the establishment. Hersh's also happened to be where I was meeting my niece. She was still short by our standards, probably a little shorter than an average male human, I figured. And despite moving with what I might once have said was grace, 
The biases I picked up from your kind meant that I immediately saw her as blunderingly awkward on her three spindly legs. My vestigial chest limb grasped hers in greeting, and we sat in the faux leather unupholstered seats. So, Uncle, about my, uh, business opportunity? She cast a conspiratorial glance at the human at the bar. It's bullcrap, to borrow the human adage. Her eyes, which I saw as too far apart despite being normally spaced for a Corian, went white. Yes, I suppose you haven't met a human before today. The station is on the border between this space and the rest of the galaxy, so it is understandable, I suppose. After all, you traveled a long way from home just to get here. So walk me through your decision process here. Why do you want to take the children of these miners? Hazel's expressions flickered, and she shifted in an awkwardly shaped booth. Her vestigial hand twitched, while her two arms spread themselves as wide as they could. Every species in the known galaxy loves their kids. Well, every sensible carbon-based species, anyway, she hesitated. If I had kids, I'd do whatever the captors said, just to make sure that they were safe and sound. No question. Humans don't follow. They lead, Hassel. They don't protect their own by doing the most rational, logical thing. They protect their offspring by deceiving themselves that they can do the impossible to protect them, and then use that as motivation to do the impossible. I reached under the table and felt for the privacy switch. Holographic curtains of light distortion shimmered down near the side of the booth as weak electrostatic force fields scrabbled sound. I pulled out my handheld, which much against convention was in fact a slightly modified human-built hand terminal, because of course it was, and laid it on the beer-soaked, slightly sticky table between us, switching on the projector. The news article shimmered into view above us as a 3D image of a human male clutching a child glittered beside it. She sniffed derisively, hyperbole. I was there, I replied. It was the truth. The guy's name had been Alfie. Some horrible turn of events had happened in one of the spin cylinders orbiting a planet and an apartment building caught in fire. In the process, a child was left inside. I've seen battleships tumble from orbital warfare to flattened cities and watched young lovers cradle the shattered remains of their partners. But nothing compares to seeing a mother come rushing home from work to find her apartment ablaze with a child inside. Her whale. And Alfie didn't even know her. Plenty of reason to empathize, for sure. But this man sprinted into a building entirely unprotected, Navigated through flames and smoke to find the kid, then shielded the child from falling rubble with his own body. For a child, he was entirely unrelated to. The conventional wisdom was that humanity had it hardest out of the space-faring species. A homeworld with a gravity almost too high to enter orbit. Their species surviving the evolutionary bottlenecks around the eruption of a supervolcano and coming and going of ice ages and sharing a planet with venomous critters and pathogens. And don't get me started on the Strania. I suspected that explains humanity's unusually strong bond with their children. But I think it was that day which transmuted my awe of humanity into true respect. Reverence, even. That's normal, you know. 
Every day, tens of stories like that spread across these mesh nets and broadcasts, at least. And you know what else? They're unstoppable. Not just psychologically, either. Not just like how they brute force their way into every interstellar industry and revolutionized most space warfare within two centuries of first contact. The Koreans had, on first contact four centuries ago, held advantages over humans in every area but AI. Now, we hold only electrostatic pseudo-force fields and access to hyperspace, though increasingly I see my own kind using your name for it, Sinclair Space, that are either more advanced than or more easily manufactured than your own versions. In 400 years, and now, with the war, even those gaps are narrowing. Even then, I often wonder if there's something about your Alkabiri drives that makes them superior to hyperspace that we just don't know about. That's why she wanted to kidnap the kids. Miners working for Buckingham Industries, a company undercutting even our species' most competitive corporations, had been steadily pushing into the worlds the family business had unofficially officially claimed. In her head, they'd be a good bargaining chip. I mean... They just don't stop. I called up another article. Older. Historical, actually. A parent watched their child knocked down by a ground car, and in some kind of hormonal maelstrom, they managed to lift the vehicle off them. A ton, a ton and a half of cheap Japanese motor car meant nothing to a human when a child was in danger. Then I called up more articles. And more. What's wrong with these apes? she asked. It's just not small scale either. In the 21st century, some little girls in the country no one had heard of were kidnapped by religious terrorists and forcibly converted to their faith. They started a worldwide social media movement that eventually recovered the children. And, well, have you seen the latest in the Grey Human War? No. The Lotai are old. 64 million orbits. Call that, what, 67 million of your years ago. The Lotai had been a minor subgalactic power. Then, in the midst of the war with... something, your precursors, the first people, swatted them aside like flies. A couple of centuries ago, they came back, and, as you know, consider a number of now-inhabited worlds to be their territory, especially some of the first people land, like Earth. And just how infectious are you human ideas, you ask? Infectious enough that even though, to our eyes, the Lotai don't look grey, we still call them greys, just like everyone else. Give someone or something a nickname, and within any week, everyone in civilized galaxy, from diplomats to scientists to prostitutes, are using it. You are forever in vogue. The Lotai Vanguard was heading towards Sol, the hope system. And right as they dropped to sublight, wham! Whole system just vanished in a burst of energy that wiped out every low-tie starship not caught in the maelstrom of watch space-time. I... I don't understand. I don't think I'd ever seen my niece look so horrified and confused. The humans found and used the first people relic that they'd never tested. Didn't understand and could barely power to, uh, destroy... The analysts think uh, to destroy their home star system just to forbid the greys the satisfaction of conquering it. Since then, 
Humanity have been on the front foot in major way, which itself is madness. Our proudest historical moments as a species was when we retook the homeworld from the Ashtai aggressors 10,000 years ago. We would never have wiped out an entire star system to deprive the enemy of the pleasure. Humanity have a saying for it, cutting off the nose to spite the face. I paused for a moment. And worse, there's been friendly contests between the various human factions to give their warships the most ridiculous, insulting names just to further degrade the Lotai they demolish in battle after battle, despite a vast gap in technology. I puffed my cheeks out, thinking, I think the best one I heard was called the HMS Lie Back and Think of England, or maybe the HMS giving you the ruddy good talking to. It's very human, isn't it? Systematically destroying every offense and then defense. You mount in a war and not even doing you the decency of ensuring that the ship that kills you has a serious name. They're... they're insane. Yeah, no idea. I shook my head. One of your little nuggets of body language that has percolated out into the galaxy. We are insane. Selfish. They care so much about their kids that aren't even their own that if you do this, you'll get yourself killed. They have zero tolerance for people who go after children. Believe me. You want to know the lesson here, kid? As I changed the display to one last hollow, she nodded earnestly. The last image was a human being performing martial arts. It was one of the few videos that I'd felt was important enough to save for my travels. It was the way he moved. The man flowed like water, all while kicking and punching and tripping his opponents. Don't feck with humans, I said. There are lots of things that frighten. No, not frighten. Disquiet me. Lots of things that disquiet me about your kind. But I think that, ignoring your natural grace born of evolution and high gravity and the strength which comes with it, what worries me most about you is your unfailing insistence. You insist that centuries, no, millennia of technological progress can be duplicated by your scientists in decades. You insist that your children are too important for silly things like forces of nature to apply to you if they're in danger. You insist that you're right, that others should listen to you, should be molded into your psychological shape. And the thing is, somehow, by insisting the impossible, you make it possible. You make it true. Whatever my poor niece Hassel has done, please insist she isn't lynched by those miners for her crimes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1399. Twenty years too late. Written by stones, doors, beetles. Across the black void drifted a paradise, much unlike our desolate home. Peering through our great telescopes, we found its surface covered by wide, grassy plains, dense forests of green-leafed trees, and deep blue seas. Our own land was parched, our rivers cataracts, our barren soil only able to host a thin red weed. As our families began to starve, we hurried to build great ships capable of conveying us to that saving hope from ecological extinction. 
but a hairy pest, building cities and canals of its own, stood on two legs between us and salvation. So we filled our vessels, not with any weapons of war, but with the tools of an exterminator. Black smoke to flush out the vermin and a heat ray to vaporize them. We packed our red vine to pollinate the countryside with our fruits and flowers. We crowded into our cylindrical spaceships, bidding our families goodbye. They bid us good luck and fair travels across the empty gulf of outer space. A few months later, we landed in a muddy, blackened land, pocked with more craters than the surface of Deimos. We did not dare to venture outside because of the great thunder that never seemed to cease rolling over our heads. As we assembled our three-legged threshers, we wondered if the earth was such a wet place that it stormed constantly. We would soon learn that storm was anything but natural. After several days, with our preparations complete, we unscrewed all three feet of shining steel on our lids immediately. We were set upon by the precipitation of a leaden storm. Shells detonated all around us, throwing up great spouts of earth. We understood immediately why this land was so cratered. We had landed in the midst of a war amongst beasts. It brought us immense satisfaction with our quarry already set upon each other. It would only be too easy to mop up the survivors. Our tripods rose from the craters of our own cylinders had dug. We surveyed the destruction, noted its abrupt end a few miles east and west, and marched in both directions, towards whatever these apes called civilization. We never made it more than half a mile. The wall seemed similar to our own primitive history, with each side lobbing shells at each other until one surrendered. But the beasts had taken the crudeness of one shell and, uh, by multiplying it by a factor of five or six, turned it into a horror of unceasing, automatic warfare. Mired by the mud, we trudged towards the trenches and defenses that we could observe, but not under the fire of just one or ten, or one hundred, or one thousand, or even ten thousand. Instead, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions, fell, as countless as raindrops over the next few hours. By any guess, hundreds of shells across the battle line were exploding every second, and the deafening roar made it impossible to communicate, let alone think. Our machines were not designed to withstand this great bombardment, and so by the time we reached these apes' trenches, only a quarter of our tripods remained standing. It didn't matter, we still thought. We still believed in the strength of our heat rays. However, while they stayed crouched in their trenches, they were concealed from our deadly beams, even as we grew closer and closer to their lines. Our towering machines overshadowing their huddled shapes, the defenders stubbornly held their positions. At last, we had closed enough distance to deploy the black smoke and force the rodents out of their holes and into our sights. The grim, gaseous curtain descended upon the trenches, but we saw not a single one hop out of the trench. We realized they had no idea what horror was about to inflict itself upon their lungs. 
Yet, even as the clouds did fill up their defenses, we could not find even one coughing straggler climbing out from cover. We assumed, as the smoke blew away with a brisk wind, that every ape in those trenches had perished. That assumption was shattered when the impossible greeted our scopes. Somehow, they had come to this battle prepared for our black smoke. Whistles shrieked up and down our quarry's trenches, and out the top poured thousands of screams muffled behind air-filtering masks. With grenades in hands, they charged our tripods, bringing each down by the legs. Our heat rays, mounted on the hood of our threshers, could not depress low enough to strike them dead. It was our turn to stumble backwards. Our formation had been crumbling, but now it hastily collapsed. In complete disarray, some of our tripods marched forwards, only to be picked off by artillery or the monkeys tossing dynamite below us. The rest of us withdrew to no man's land to the escape promised by our ships. The apes began their counter-offensive. As we slogged through the mud, a new shower of shells landed upon us. When they exploded, they did not gouge the earth, but released vast clouds of yellowish smoke. Every one of us had filters in our control cars to protect us from the earth's pollutants and toxins, but we never anticipated a weapon like our own black smoke being used against us. Only a few lethal particles per million made it through our filters, but that was enough to eat off our flesh and char our lungs. Many tripods hung limp after the ape's golden smoke drifted off. Their pilots drowned in their own blood. At least we reached our cylinders and dashed for safety, preparing to take off for a home and flee. Between the frantic punches at the control panel, I looked up to see great vultures circling above my comrades' tripods. But these birds were made of canvas and wood, carrying guns and bombs. With practiced accuracy, they strafed our machines with their guns, blew them to smithereens with bombs from above. Now heat rays could not keep pace with the frustrating flies that whirled in and out of our sight. We were soundly beaten. We did not think that what little civilization these men possessed could ever pose a threat to our harvest. But that was merely an error in our calculation. As I rocketed into orbit, safe from their planes, their gas, and their shells, I promised on my comrade's life that these men would not beat us again. I have a good reason to guarantee our victory. We have seen the absolute limits of human mechanical warfare, while they have only seen our tools of agriculture. They have yet to see our own planes and artillery and automatic fire. They have yet to see the true art of warfare, which turns the very atoms in the fabric of the universe into weapons of war. In these years since our humiliating defeat, we have taken the last of our dying planet's life and our last ounce of our own energy to prepare the final assault on their civilization. At last, then, we will have our garden paradise. In the year they call 1945, we will return to Earth. Surely this time, they'll have no idea 
what kind of ultimate weapon we can unleash. End of story. Story number two. We should have listened. Written by Kaiser 5243. Recovered ship slog. Designation Research and Recon Sector 596364. Earth. Audio. Log 1, Day 1. We have successfully entered high orbit of planet designation Earth. Prospecting team had a meeting with a life form that hunts local population and was warned not to pursue. Threat assessment shows this creature's threat is within allowed threat tolerances and research for weakness and exploration for planned invasion will continue as planned. Interviewed hunter species designation Bamba appears to live in highly populated city centers. Samples will be taken from wooden and rural areas to avoid interaction. Log 2, Day 2. More human males located in woods area. Specimens appear to be naked and soiled with dirt and debris. We believe they spent the night in the wooded area for unknown reasons. Specimens have been sedated and transported to hold cell 4 for further observation and testing. Log 3, Day 7. The group of humans display behavior similar to other pack animals that we have encountered. They seem to all follow the lead specimen A. Specimen A is the only human who has attempted to speak to us since their capture. The specimens are as a group do not appear to be concerned with the capture, and specimen A only repeats the phrase, You should have listened to the leeches. When questioned. Log 4, Day 30. The specimens have begun pacing their enclosure. We are at this time not sure if this is self-soothing behavior, or if they intend to attempt escape. They have also been etching a countdown from 30 on the wall of their enclosure since their capture. The reason is currently unknown. When questioned, specimen A bears his teeth and repeats, You should have listened! Medical experimentation to begin tomorrow. Log 5, Day 22. Medical experimentation has proved both frustrating and alarming results. The specimen's ability to heal damage caused to their bodies makes it difficult to keep them sedated, and any surgical procedures are almost impossible. We are uncertain if this is common amongst you. If so, physical warfare may be impractical. A larger specimen pool is required. Log 6, Day 29. A change has suddenly come over the specimens. They've begun laughing and pulling on the bars of their enclosure as if trying to bend them. Specimen A continues to shout, You should have listened! Over and over. We believe an escaped attempt is imminent. However, threat assessment shows the metal of the bars of their enclosure has a much higher tensile strength than human muscles can bend. Log 7, Day 29. Vile corruption suspected. They've escaped! Hells! And we heard in the background. They've changed! Screams of once suspected the best crew. We, c- we cannot contain them! The medical officer stops short. Reason unknown. Heavy animal panting can be heard over the recording before the log stops. Recovery team dispatched. Unable to make contact with research vessel. Invasion force halted until we can determine the fate of the ship and crew. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1400 Useful piece of paper written by underscore sky underscore underscore 
Mr. Human Ambassador, I am honored to extend the invitation to the venerated Bryce Admiral By this act of patronage, your species is officially requested to participate. Congratulations. Oh yes, indeed. That is the Commonwealth's equivalent of your noble prize ceremony. Just far more prestigious. Absolutely. I know you deem your noble prize winners highly. But this is the event on a galactic level. The awards are given every 12 years. For advancements in a multitude of fields of science and artistic achievements. Which piece of your art is nominated? Oh... Not to insult your civilization's cultural accomplishments in any way, but your species nomination is not of such nature. Rather, it is of a scientific one. Uh, to be honest, I too was surprised. Never before has a civilization that only just developed FTL and joined the Commonwealth received a nomination in any scientific field. Yes, this is a great honor indeed. And I reckon that due to this, you will soon be able to apply for full membership. No other species will dare to vote against fully accepting such a promising and new addition to the Commonwealth. I'm sorry, but I'm afraid I can't say exactly what it is that you're recommended for. The ceremony is secretive for reasons rooted in ancient tradition. But these days it is done just because it gives more a flair to the event itself. However... I can confirm that your nomination falls in the category of practical use of science, or what I believe you would call patent, or maybe scientific paper, or rather useful one to be more exact. Exactly! Our AIs have stumbled upon something in your patents database, which has deemed incredibly convenient to the Commonwealth's wide population. Thus, you were directly nominated. Yes, the main scientific AIs are the ones making the nomination. No, it's not computer games. Yes, they are amazing artistic creations, and they are becoming widely popular, but, uh, no, sorry. I really can't say more, but you can be sure it's not video games. If it were those, your nomination would fall under the art category, not patents. You see, it does make sense to be secretive about it. It generates a lot of interest, doesn't it? Hell, I guess your entire species will be watching the ceremony live, and they will be speculating on the nature of your nomination, searching for the probable painting, where it was first published, used, etc. That is one of the reasons the venerated prize ceremony became so stunningly popular and a regal event. I'm glad you understand. Of course. If you win, the rewards will be paid out entirely, even if your civilization is not a full member yet. I would not worry too much. Even if you do not win the first prize in your category, the Terran status will be immensely improved by the end of the ceremony. Oh, for sure, the practical use of science is one of the categories held in the highest esteem. It is the equivalent of your Nobel Prize in physics, importance-wise. Well, the last time the reward was given to the Cull and AI hive mind, it came up with a rather amazing way to use so quantum physics to program machines of a subatomic level. Revolutionary, really. And it was all discovered by accident. But applications are enormous. Ability to literally program something vastly smaller than an atom and use it to perform complex tasks. It is... 
Ah, yes, your species still doesn't know the inner workings of a sub-quantum world, but that is due to lack of processing power on your AIs. I mean, the amount of data storage space needed to work on it is an order of magnitude greater than what you currently have, so, um... True, that is what makes your achievement of being awarded the nomination a stunning success. Oh, winner directly prior to Carl on AI Hivemind, uh... No, uh, there was no nomination for practical use of science for that cycle. It really has to be something big to actually be nominated. So sadly, there are even times where there is no contender at all. Yet, that only adds more to the prestige of the prize. Certainly, you can now access the history files on the venerated prize ceremony. Even just that will do wonders for your scientists in terms of guidelines as to where they should focus their research. But as things currently stand, I am very hopeful you will find your way faster than most. You see, now our ways suddenly do not seem so strange or unreasonable to you. Every race has a different mentality and differently programmed AIs. What in turn enables the Commonwealth to attack some hard problems from different angles, resulting in some races making discoveries others would never be able to. Or they would spend orders of magnitude more energy to achieve them. I should not say that, but all things considered, you actually stand a good chance of winning. And that says something, considering this year has a record number of nominations. Five, nonetheless. This will truly be a magnificent year for practical use of science in the Commonwealth. No, I'm afraid I can't tell you about the other nominations either, naturally. Yeah, it was a silly question. It would not be a secretive award ceremony if I was leaking information like that, would it? Ah! <laughs> that was a good joke. Hell, now I feel sorry that I'll have to keep your part of this conversation secret too. So nobody will ever hear it. <laughs> ah, damn, it really was a good joke. Yes, in case the winning prize, it is customary for your political leader to make a speech. Your biological leader, that is, not an AI. That too is all due to tradition, but nobody minds it. It makes the whole thing even more inspiring. After the speech, our AIs finally showcase the patent in question for all the galaxy to admire. Absolutely, your president will be more than adequate for such a task. Well, I have nothing more to add. Your delegation for the ceremony can arrive when you deem appropriate. They'll be given honorary seats, with all other accommodations taken care of. The event itself will be free broadcast to all, so there should not be any problems. Though, the honor is mine. Welcome to the Commonwealth, Terrans. A few weeks later. You still have no idea on what patent we might have been nominated for? No, Mr. President. We went through all of our scientific papers, but we assumed that it has to be something related to our graphics software. Really? Indeed. Other races never had video games industry. Thus, their computer technology never developed in that direction. You simply do not need purposely designed graphics-dedicated software and hardware for most of the mathematical and scientific problems. You can solve all of those equations without any graphic interface at all. Hmm, actually, it uh, makes perfect sense. Yes, sir. After all, we humans are a species that relies heavily on our senses of visualization. 
and we did spend a good amount of resources on programming our AIs in those directions. All right, I'll then direct my PR department to write a prize acceptance speech with that in mind. Me better be ready not to embarrass yourself. Day of the Award Ceremony Today, dear audience, from across the galaxy, we present you the fruits given to us by the most brilliant minds in the Commonwealth, and even the ingenious patent conceived by the ones which are not yet full members. After those words, the eyes and cameras in the gigantic room turned towards the human delegation. Indeed, this is a great day for the galaxy. Never before has the competition been so stiff or grandiose, nor have I been more proud to announce the winner. The atmosphere was so tense that it could stop a bullet. After carefully and with due diligence calculating, simulating, and using countless other methods of predicting the effects of this cycle's practical use of science, nominees' contributions will have on the life and the Commonwealth and future of civilizations. The committee of the main AI has finally decided on a clear winner. There was a pause. All objective measurements are clear. This cycle's winner is... The silence in the room was deafening. The Terran Union, proclaimed the narrator, his voice ecstatic, but the place was silent. The president and the rest of the human delegation looked around, smiling. Thus, let us now commemorate our winners with their species' traditional gesture of gratitude. Please clap your hands, tentacles, or any other appendages you might have as this is the common way humans greet something they approve. Out of nowhere, a noise of honest appreciation erupted. Cheers and claps in all the ways members of the other species present knew how to make, echoed over the room. All that to celebrate and congratulate in the human manner. The president rose from his seat with practiced movements, his smile never fading from his face, as is deep in his chest, the human heart was beating with pride, bounded by this momentous occasion. In seemingly just a few steps, the experienced politician was ready, standing in front of the esteemed audience of the best and the brightest the Commonwealth had to offer. Were the ears of the entire galaxy eager to hear his every word, and then finally see the reveal of such an amazing piece of practical use of science. The president, for his part, glared into the distance, taking a striking pose. He certainly repracticed countless times before his PR department, determined to present mankind in the best light. He spoke with eloquence and enviable oratory skills, likely given to him by a talented team of writers that prepared a speech beforehand. Dear citizens of the Commonwealth, today my society is proud to become a part of your history in a way that we could have only dreamt of. The destiny, in its chaotic wisdom, decided that this time the youngest of races would solve one of the most profound problems. Nodding with his head, his eyes reflected intelligence. The president continued. Admittedly, some of your customs seem strange to us at first. He paused for a heartbeat. Indeed, this very event is one such example. Nominating and even proclaiming a victor prior to revealing which deed was done to diverse such praise is, 
unorthodox from a human point of view, to say the least. A smile danced up the president's lip. But not anymore. It has this day that we see the wisdom in your ancient traditions. Because ever since the nomination had been given to us, we spent countless days wondering, pondering, contemplating as to which part of us, which part of humanity, has impressed you so much. What could our mind possibly develop that would amaze ones like you? Silence swept over the room, interest and admiration shining from every sapient being listening. And then, like many times before in humanity's history, something blinked. He left the last word hanging, and we tried looking ourselves through your eyes. Suddenly, remembering how the act alone, the ability to visualize others' dilemmas, the others' point of view, was always mankind's way. His voice, now growing energetic. Yes, that is mankind's way. He raised his hand in a lecturing manner. We refuse to turn our heads away, no matter how hard was it to face our disputes. We were eager to do it, to stare into the abyss and its darkness, in spite of how scary it must have seemed at times. The president shook his head and looked straight at the cameras. Because, as the Commonwealth has shown, the only way to fight back against the cruelties of existence is to attack them from all angles. An act which starts at first by observing, not running away into abstract world of mathematics and logic. All more so because those tools can often give you the right number, but an extremely wrong idea of what you are dealing with. And we humans, well, we always wanted to see the bigger picture. And with those words, the president gracefully bowed to the audience, which instantly erupted in cheers and applause, being fully able to understand every deep meaning of his gestures. Back on Earth, the untold number of viewers stood stunned, prideful of their race, understanding that even though they were not the wisest or oldest of civilizations, there is always something more to human spirit than meets the eye. That was until it was soon revealed that the glorious painted in question was toilet paper. That, as humans like to say, really put things into perspective. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1401 Travelers from Afar, written by The Missing Think this all happened when my grandfather's grandfather was a child. But we remember and tell the story that in the fullness of time, you shall too remember and tell it. It was the ritual opening for one of the great tales. The stories passed down across the generations which taught the history and what it meant to be a bassoon. There were 23 of us gathered around the fire. Twenty-four if you included my cousin Dida, barely two months old. All of us sat in respectful silence to listen to Sikla, the elder, even Dida doing nothing more than gurgling contentedly. They came to us in a great ball of fire, traveling across the skies faster than a man can run, and the sound of their passing was as thunder. At this point, the older members of the tribe drummed their feet on the hard dirt floor to simulate the noise. 
The elder let it build for a few seconds, growing louder as it reverberated back from the cliffs, before bringing his hands together in a booming clap, silencing his audience. As the last echoes faded away, he resumed his tale. And so it was that they reached the ground, though we knew it not. Mandy, amongst the tribe, was scared, not knowing what had occurred and fearing what they could not explain. These chose to hide in their caves, but one man braver than the rest chose to go and see what the strange thing was. Lata was his name, and we celebrate his courage. Hula! The tribe roared back in approval. Hula! 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 Lata traveled all day long, his eyes fixed on the column of smoke which hung in the air. He left the hills of our people far behind and entered the forest, which was old then as it is today. Though he could no longer see the smoke, and though his feet were sore, still brave Lotta journeyed on. In those days, the forest held dread creatures with sharp claws and terrible fangs. Yet these did not stop him. It is said that Lata walked with such determination and confidence that these monsters fled from him, reasoning that any who dared tread their path so openly must be fiercer than they, and to be avoided. At length Lata came to end of the forest and reached the great plain. What he saw there caused even brave Lata to pause and consider turning back. Sikla was a master storyteller, and he paused here to drink from a jug of water at his side, surreptitiously watching his audience from the corner of his eye, judging the moment when anticipation started to drift into impatience with perfection. He continued, Carved into the soil of the plain was a great furrow, as though some giant had dug a fingernail into the dirt and dragged it along. At the end of this furrow was a source of the smoke Lotta had been pursuing, still too distant to be seen. Reasoning that to travel so far only to turn back would be foolish, he called on the strength of his ancestors and pressed on. The audience thumped their fists against their chests in a gesture which passed for applause amongst their people, admiration shining in their eyes. The sun was setting as Lotta reached the end of his trek, but the many small fires provided enough light for him to see. The ground was littered with shattered remnants of something. Twisted pieces of material he didn't recognize lay everywhere. Some blackened by fire, others still burning. To Lotta, it looked like a mess left by a thrown egg. If that egg had held fire and been the size of the largest tree in the forest. Towards the edge of the wreckage sat a remarkable object, shaped like a seed, as tall as Lata was high and three times as long. It shone orange in the dying sunlight. Cautiously did Lata approach the strange seed, creeping forward on his bare feet until he stood before it. Sikla made a sound with his tongue. Tuck, tuck, tuck. 
three times larger wrapped on the outside of the seed with his knuckles. The surface was hard, too hard to break, yet it sounded hollow. He walked to the other side and struck it again. Tock, tock, tock. That same hollow, ringing sound. With the night rapidly approaching, he moved back into the shelter of the long grasses, and Larta slept. Morning came and Larta awoke to strange noises, like the chattering of beasts. Fearing for his safety, he rose carefully and parted the grass to peer out at his surroundings. The seed had broken open at one end, and before it stood three strange creatures of a type he'd never seen before. Like us, they had two arms and two legs, but each one stood half again as tall as the tallest of us. Like Larta, they wore clothes, but these were not woven grasses that Larta was familiar with. These were made of some shimmering material that covered them from neck to toe. The biggest difference, though, was that these creatures possessed no tails. A murmur of wonder spread around the younger members of the tribe, for whom this was the first time the tale had been told. Larta stayed hidden for many minutes, observing the tailless ones. He watched as they unloaded boxes from the seed, watched as they created a shelter from the variety of items pulled from those boxes, and watched as they ate and drank. Seeing them drink reminded Larta of his own thirst. So backing away slowly, he made his way to a nearby stream to drink. Circa took as opportunity to take another drink himself to soothe his dry throat. Once Larta had drank his spill, he sat back on his haunches in deep thought, staring at his reflection. After a time, his reflection spoke to him. Why do you hesitate? You have walked many miles to see this thing. Will you now return home, having done nothing? Larta agreed with himself. The creatures were obviously intelligent, and he longed to speak to them. But what if they were dangerous? Wise, Larta thought, then thought some more, until a plan came to him. He walked off into the bush, picking the largest leaf he could find, he loaded it with fruits and berries, pausing only to eat a few for himself. He made sure to pick only the ripest and juiciest of fruits for his platter. Creeping back to the seed, he paused to peer through the long grasses again. The creatures were all gathered around a pile of wood. One of them knelt and pointed at the wood, and it burst into flame. Larta was so surprised he nearly dropped his leaf. In those days, fire was a precious thing for his tribe, even more than it is now. He remembered his time as a child when he had been a fire tender, responsible for keeping it fed and burning through the long night. It had been an awesome responsibility. A tribe without fire would go cold and hungry. It could even lead to the death of the tribe as people left to make new home with another group who tended theirs properly. Larta recalled himself to his plan. With one eye on the creatures, he crept from his hiding place and put the platter of fruit and berries on a flat rock before scurrying back to his hiding place. It didn't take long for the creatures to see it, and they crowded around, speaking in loud noises to each other. 
The one who seemed to be the chief took up one of each fruit and disappeared into the seed. He soon returned and separated out two kinds of berries before all of them ate the remainder. With the platter cleared, the leader placed the container on the platter next to the rejected berries, then ushered his companions back to stand in front of the seed. This is what wise lot had been hoping for, an offering for an offering. Making sure the strangers stayed well back, he moved cautiously from his hiding place and investigated the container. It was full of water, lifting it carefully to his lips. He drank. The water was as cool as a mountain stream with a strange, flat taste, as though all flavor had been removed from it. He gently replaced the container on the rock, then backed away and sat down, holding his open hands towards the strangers. As Lata hoped, the chief stepped forward slowly and sat in the same position. They sat in that fashion looking at each other for many minutes. Then the chief raised his hand and touched his chest, making a noise as he did so. He repeated this several times until Lotta realized he was giving his name. He tried to repeat the sound to show he understood. Garl? The stranger shooed his teeth and then gestured to Lotta. It was his turn to tap his chest and gave his name. The stranger's attempt repeating it was close enough. Lotta? Having exchanged names, both sat in silence again. Lotta decided it was time for him to make the next move. He advanced to the flat stone and ate one of the berries, watching the chief as he did so. The stranger seemed to understand and also approached the stone, although he didn't eat, which disappointed Lotta. Instead, he pointed at the empty side of the leaf, then off into the bushes and grass that surrounded them. He did this several times, each time pointing in a different direction. Realization came to Lata. He couldn't eat the berries. Lata stood and ran into the bushes, returning moments later with an armful of other fruits. To his relief, the stranger hadn't moved. He put these down on the leaf, and the stranger picked one up and ate. When he finished, he stood up and pointed to himself. Garl pointed to Lata. Lada, then into the bush in the direction of the fruit tree. Lada considered this for a moment, then stood himself and pointed, Lada, Gull, and started walking slowly. Gull flashed his teeth briefly, then moved to walk alongside Lada as he showed him where to pick the fruits which he liked so much. From the simple start, their relationship quickly developed. Lotta learnt that the other two creatures were called Chain and Stiff. He showed them how to find other fruits they might eat, and where the nearest stream was. Most treasured of all, they showed Lotta how to scrape two rods together to create fire. One rod of stone, the other made of the same material as their seed. Many days passed in this manner until one day the creature known as Stiff ran from the seed chattering excitedly. Gaul listened to him for a time and then turned to Lata, pointed at himself and then to the two other creatures. He then pointed upwards. It took Lata a little while and a few other gestures before he understood. The creatures would be leaving, returning to the skies from which they came. 
This made Larcha sad. But seeing the joy on their faces, he understood that this had to be. Gaul led Larta into the long grasses, with a series of gestures communicated that he should stay hidden. Before leaving, he pressed the fire-starting rods into Larta's hand, holding it there for a moment. Larta stayed where he was and watched as the creatures hurriedly loaded their boxes back into the seed. With the last of their equipment moved, they stepped into the entrance. Gaul paused to look back at his hiding place, and raising his hand, the sides of the seed moved, closing the hole as if it had never existed. Moments later, Larta saw something in the sky above. It descended rapidly and settled over the seed, hiding it from view. Almost without pause, it rose again, leaving nothing behind but dented and discolored grass. Larta made a long journey back to his tribe, clutching the fire rods tightly in his hands. When he returned, there was much rejoicing amongst these people. He had been gone for so long that many had thought him dead, devoured by the beasts of the forest. Proudly, he recounted his tale. Many doubted his words, saying that he had eaten too many overripe fruits. But these voices were silenced when he produced the rods that he had been given and used them to make fire before their eyes. This ends the tale of brave Lata, who befriended the gods and brought the gift of perpetual fire to the bassoon. Hula! 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 End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.